You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. Well, good morning, America. This is Pete Mecca, your host for A Veteran Story on AmericasWebRadio.com. My guest today is Tina Woods, the author and editor of My War, From Bismarck to Britain and Back. This is a collection of letters written by her mother, Ruth Christian Register, from overseas when she was serving in the Red Cross during World War II. It's combined with the war diary kept by her grandmother, Edith Christensen, who chronicled what was happening on the home front from Bismarck, North Dakota. Tina published this book in 2005. It was a labor of love that she and her mother worked on for several years. Its publication led to a wonderful reconnection with some of the veterans who knew Ruth when she was a 26-year-old war widow, running aero clubs for the enlisted men on bomber bases in Britain. Tina's been a writer for as long as she can remember and always loves a good story. Her first 20 years of her career, she served as a radio writer and producer in Jacksonville, Florida, Oklahoma City, San Diego, and Los Angeles. In 1991, she and her husband moved from Los Angeles to Kerrville, a small town in the Texas Hill Country, to get a life, as she described it, and never looked back. For 11 years there, she handled public relations for the local hospital and then served as executive director of the town senior center for 16 years until retiring in 2018. Tina, welcome to the program, young lady. Thank you, Pete. It's great to be with you. Uh, Great to have you on the program. Tina, how and why did you begin this remarkable book? Well, it was was kind of an interesting process. My mom had written letters home from overseas during World War II, and her mother had carefully saved every letter. And they were written on, remember the thin airmail paper, kind of like vellum? that yeah. everybody wrote at that time. And I, I knew there was this stack of letters, which I'd never read. And because they were kind of in a fragile condition, I thought it would be a good idea to transcribe them so that we would have a record of what she wrote. And the more I transcribed them, the more I realized that this was a wonderful story because Mother couldn't write specifics I think part of it, she didn't want to terrify her parents, and the other part of it was they would be censored. So she was really good about writing what a typical day is like and what she was doing in general terms. So when I got into this, I discovered Mother was digging through some things, and she found her mother's war diary. Um, Mom grew up in Bismarck, North Dakota. Her father was a state Supreme Court justice, and my grandmother was had been paralegal, and she was a very um, disciplined writer with diaries, but they were always these five-year diaries where you had just one inch to write about a day. But her war <laughs> diary was a spiral notebook where she wrote freely, and she pasted in newspaper articles and um, it kind of in talking with mother, we thought it would be really a wonderful way to intersperse my grandmother's diary entries with mother's letters so that there was a, a look at what was happening on the front and then what was happening at home. And so yeah, I, I, 
Yeah, I read your book. It, it is a remarkable journey through World War II. Tell us about your mother's first husband. Um, Mom was, uh, she married her brother's best friend. His name was Francis Register, but his nickname was Cash Register. You can kind of see why they <laughs> called him. And uh, he had grown up in my mother's household. I mean, they were all pals and, and got into all kinds of trouble together as kids. And mother just kind of viewed him as another brother until she was traveling and he had gone down to Pensacola to go to flight school. And she was in Pensacola and contacted him and said, you know, let's get together. Tell me all about what you're doing. And he showed up at her door in uniform with red roses. And it just knocked her flat. It was like, oh, my gosh. Um, he had grown up and so had she. So the romance began at that point. And uh, he had finished. He would gotten his wings and was going to be shipped out to San Diego at that point. And so they hurriedly got married in Los Angeles and then lived in Coronado. And Cash began his naval career. He was in the Battle of Guadalcanal and uh, was the first North Dakota ace. He bagged eight Japanese planes over Guadalcanal. And wow. Mother often, yeah, Mother often said that he was he was a wild man. He just didn't know fear, and he was the perfect personality to go to war and certainly to be flying because he just he had very little regard for his own safety. He was going to do the job. And as it turned out, he did the job and uh, got tapped to go on a special mission up to the Aleutians. And it was there that uh, it was never quite clear whether he was actually shot down or whether the, the weather, the fog came in. Um, but he did crash on Attu and was killed. They married in uh, February 1942, and he was killed in May of 1943. So, um, and it was deployed for a lot of that time. So, they didn't have yeah. very much time together at all. Well, that's an amazing uh, a fighter race with eight kills over Guadalcanal. Uh, tell us about the candlelight service of those serving overseas. I think that's from page 56. Yes, this was um, an entry from my grandmother's diary, and I found it really interesting because, you know, there really wasn't a lot written of what communities would do to honor the ones, the kids who were fighting or the ones that had been lost. So uh, she writes, this is from November 7th, 1943. One year since our troops landed in North Africa, and after that first brief setback, the march has been steadily toward victory. General Eisenhower has proved himself as one of the great men of our country, and our soldiers all over the world have proved themselves to be surpassed by none. Many men of outstanding knowledge and discernment feel that the war with Germany will be over by the first of the year. This is 1943. Yeah. Italy quit early in September. Last night, Mr. Hamlin had a truly beautiful and impressive candlelight service for our boys and girls in the service. On a white rack hung in front of a huge map of the United States were candles for each one serving in this street. And as he read the names, a candle was lighted for each one. On a side table was a globe surrounded by candles of those at sea or in other lands. 
all were lighted. A candelabrum, I'm sorry, a candelabrum with three candles was put on the pulpit, and Francis's name was read, serving still but beyond the horror, the suffering. I was proud that our two were represented. I don't know why I wow. get so emotional over these things, but I do. I'm sorry. That's okay. Hey, emotion is good, especially uh, uh, about these things. Uh, that was an excellent part of the book. Uh, now, your mother's name was Ruth. When and why did your mom join the Red Cross? Well, after Cash was killed, she went back to Bismarck and um, didn't really know what to do with herself, but wanted to get involved in the war effort. And her plan was to try and do something with Navy flyers in the Pacific. And a friend of hers had enlisted in the Red Cross and was actually in Egypt at the time and said that Mother would be perfect for the Red Cross. So she wrote a letter and then never heard anything. And then a couple months later, she got a wire to get an interview. Um, as it turns out, she she went to four different interviews in four different cities in like a week's time, which doesn't sound like much to us, but she had to take a train everywhere. It was really quite frantic. But as it turned out, the Red Cross was interested in putting young women, youngish women, overseas to represent a little bit of home for the guys who were fighting. They had to be all college educated. They had to be at least 25 years old. Um, and one of the questions they asked her was, how many states have you been in? And at that time, she was very well-traveled, and she had been in like 47 states. And wow. when she said that, the interview ended there, and they shipped her on. So um, <laughs> the whole, I know, and she was like, well, that's weird. You know, why does that matter? But as she got there, she realized that you could ask a GI, you know, where are you from? And they'd say, Memphis, Tennessee, and she could say, well, I've been there, and then suddenly it's Old Home Week. They're just talking like crazy. So um, they were looking for someone exactly like Mother. She had been involved in the theater. Um, she was a theater major. Um, she was used to entertainment and and had grown up in a household that entertained frequently. So looking back, she was the perfect candidate for the work that they had her do. I, w I would say so. Tell us about your mother's first arrow club being bombed and the story of the slit ditch. Yeah, she um, she had asked when she was training in Red Cross, they asked her if she wanted to go. She had said, I want to go to the Pacific and work with Navy Flyers. And so immediately they decided to send her to England. Uh, there were four things that Red Cross girls, they were all called girls, and weren't offended by that. Um, they could work in the USO. They could work in the aero clubs, which were on air bases. They could work with club mobiles, which were the donut dollies that everybody's so familiar with. And um, they could also work with the rest homes when people, you know, soldiers were recovering. So mother got sent to a bomber base in Braintree, England, which was just north of London. And um, I'll read, this. this is one of the things that, after she had been there, oh, maybe three weeks, their uh, clubs were in Quonset huts, because all of these bases were put up pretty hurriedly. So she writes, 
I got to Braintree and settled in. The Red Cross Club was separated from our quarters by a driveway. Well, one night shortly after we'd arrived, they called a red alert on the field. We did know that a purple alert meant the enemy was on their way. A red alert meant they were overhead. So we got the red alert. They called us on the telephone and told us. Marge and I weren't surprised when the field phone rang the second time. A voice said, red alert, Ruth and Marge. We had been hearing airplanes overhead for several minutes and already commented to each other, well, London must be fogged in, and once again, we're the secondary target. Both of us were so new at actually participating in this war that we were incapable of realizing that these events were life and death matters. I think mentally we were on some movie lot, and everything would turn out happily ever after. However, with a red alert, we left our hut quarters and stepped into the driveway outside. We had closed the Red Cross Club across from us when a purple alert had been sounded, but Sergeants Walsh and Edwards were standing at the doorway of the club. Suddenly, everything was as bright as day as our entire airfield was bathed in a brilliant light from innumerable flares that were gently floating down around us. Sergeant Walsh commented that usually flares are followed by bombs, and we all better get to the slit ditches. The only protection that was available. All right, we're going to get back to this. Uh, yeah, Tina, we're going to get back to yeah. the slit ditches in just a minute. That's, that's a remarkable yeah. thing a lot of people don't know about. We're going to our first break, folks. Stay with us. If you have lost a loved one and were left with a firearms collection and are not sure how to dispose of them safely, or you may have firearms you no longer want, this message is for you. I am a licensed FFL firearms dealer in the state of Florida, specializing in estate firearm purchases. It is very important that all firearm transactions be handled according to state and federal laws. You can contact me for information at firearmliquidationservice at outlook.com, or you can call or text me at 407-921-8100-247 and ask for James. Again, for information contact me at Firearm Liquidation Service at Outlook.com or call or text me at 407-921-8100. All communications are strictly confidential. Hi, this is Rocky Blair, former four-time Super Bowl champion with the Pittsburgh Steelers and Vietnam veteran. As a board member, I'd like to talk to you about Warriors to Citizen, a nonprofit organization that helps American heroes, soldiers, police, fire, EMT, and their families recover from the psychological harm caused by career-induced stress. Over the last 20 years, broken relationships have been a major causal factor for the highest document divorce rate and resulting suicides in this population. This program, from Warriors to Citizen, is delivered free to families by professionals, all whom served in uniform and understand the needs to be addressed. I ask for your support. So please, go to our website, warriorstocitizen.org, and find out how you can help, either by making a donation or sharing this information with an American hero that you may know. And thank you. Veterans Day is fast approaching. On November 11th, please don't forget to take a few moments to honor and thank those that have served so bravely. If you have lost a loved one and were left with a firearms collection and are not sure how to dispose of them safely, or you may have firearms you no longer want, this message is for you. I am a licensed FFL firearms dealer in the state of Florida, specializing in estate firearm purchases. It is very important that all firearm transactions be handled according to state and federal laws. You can contact me for information at Firearm Liquidation Service at Outlook.com, 
or you can call or text me at 407-921-8100-247 and ask for James. Again, for information contact me at Firearm Liquidation Service at Outlook.com or call or text me at 407-921-8100. All communications are strictly confidential. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. All right, folks, we're back with, with uh, Tina. Tina, you um, were telling about your mother's first red alert. Uh, the flares were coming down probably followed by the bombs and two guys were sort of standing guard at your either your hooch or your uh arrow club go ahead and complete that story please ma'am well they saw the flares come down and then mother writes suddenly i found myself sputtering and spitting and saying to marge i've got a mouthful of dirt not are you okay marge or what happened both of us were lying on our stomachs covered with dirt cement and debris Two inches from my head was a piece of concrete about six by six feet. In front of us was total devastation where once the 60-foot Neeson Hut Red Cross Club had stood. Somehow we both knew there was no reason to call out to Sergeants Walsh and Edwards. They were almost in the exact spot where the bomb had landed. There must have been a great deal of noise with the world erupting around us, but I can't remember a sound. Two thoughts flashed into my mind. First, the Red Cross supervisor saying, Ruth, we're sending you to an airfield that is a target of frequent bombing attacks, but we believe you can handle it. And second, what in God's name am I doing here? <laughs> so, yeah, her, her red was blown up right in front of them. And for a while, she really didn't have anything to do because they were rebuilding the club. But she... Um, she was very involved in meeting missions and didn't get her recreation work started for a while. But welcome to the war, Ruth. <laughs> yeah, welcome to the war. We had the donut dollies in Vietnam and the nurses, and they all went through the same thing we did because there were no uh, 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 real areas in, in our war. And in the, uh, World War II, the bases in England got hit so often. One of my favorite parts of the book is the story of the mission uh, due to its mm-hmm. graphic nature and the real horrors of war. Tell us about that yeah. mission. Well, Mom went from Braintree to North Tickenham, England, and it was a heavy bomber base with B-24s. And uh, her one of her jobs, besides running the Aero Club, was to make coffee and donuts uh, for the guys that were returning from these bombing raids. And in talking to the veterans, it was really amazing to hear what a physical hardship they endured. There was no pressurization in any of those B-24s. They were gone eight to nine hours at a time. Um, They froze to death. Their fillings fell out. They couldn't eat or drink anything before they went. I mean, it was not only a terrifying experience, but physically it was very taxing. So... One of the things she would do was meet the missions, and this is this is a story that she wrote about that. Uh, Ruth, control tower here. The mission will be returning in 15 minutes. This is a rough one, so be prepared. The phone ringing at 4 a.m. Always put my feet on the floor with all of my senses on alert. 
By now, with five months of service as an American Red Cross girl on a bomber base in England, calls at any hour meant one more mission is airborne. Munich, Germany, or farther must be our target this time. Early morning phone calls signaled six to eight hours flight time, and that meant deep into Germany. Every time I build a coke fire under these ancient English 40-gallon clay vats, I long for an American electric coffee maker. However, I can certainly struggle with ridiculous equipment if I can ease the pressure to anxiety of 120 air-weary flyers, 10 per plane. And she was by herself on this base. As a Red wow. Cross girl, I all returning missions. The Air Force found the debriefing after a mission was much more successful and accurate if the flying crew had a period of relaxation first. Food and conversations served by an American girl worked the magic. So off I go to the kitchen to make gallons of coffee and sandwiches for 120 weary and hungry crewmen. I mustn't forget to add a new candle to my scotch bottle. What for? To light all those forbidden while flying cigarettes. It's easier to light a cigarette by the candle rather than fumble with shaking hands to fire a match. One candle for every mission. By now, no glass is visible due to all the layers of wax. My mind refuses to dwell on the many lives all that wax represents. Too painful, I guess. Arriving in my jeep to the airstrip, I recall the words rough mission. That means we have lost some bombers or have wounded aboard. Some will be out or low on gas and forced to crash land in southern England. Every mission I sat on a high mound of dirt about a block from the central tower. Today I gather 12 stones, one for each bomber. As each plane lands, I drop a stone. Hopefully all 12 will fall today. I can see three planes on the horizon in formation. Good. Three are safe. The next formation is not in position. The lead plane is falling back. The other two are not circling the field in a holding position. They are coming directly into the landing path. I'm sorry. I don't know why I get so upset with this. Plane one has two. (laughs) Plane one has two engines feathered. Plane two has just dropped three red flares, three wounded aboard. Suddenly, it is very clear that both of them are going to land, one on top of the other. Plane two with wounded aboard has priority. Plane one is out of gas. I hear a voice screaming, no, 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 it's mine. I'm convinced that if I scream loud enough, they will hear me. I'm yelling instructions. Plane two, pull up, pull up, pull up. Everything is in slow motion with 20 lives in the balance. To be a spectator helplessly watching 20 men's lives hang in the balance is terrifying. It seems like forever before the last 15 feet and impact, the top plane flies into the tail of the bottom plane, which plunges nose down and crashes in an enormous black and fiery ball. Plane one is still airborne, fighting like a wounded bird trying to fly. You can make it. You can make it, I scream. Another eternity of slow motion. The bruised plane plummets down belly first. Then slowly, slowly, the plane breaks apart in sections. It's as though an unseen hand had pulled every rivet out of it all at once. Figures come tumbling out and running every direction. Nine, I counted. The tail 
or didn't make it. Tomorrow I will meet another mission. Isn't that horrifying? Well, but then a- the story was just quickly. I took mother to um, a spring reunion in April of 2002. It was up in Arlington, and we had just started working on this project, and some members of the 492nd Bomb Group were getting together there. And uh, we we came, and, and Mother had not been to one. I hadn't either. I didn't know if it was going to be a good thing or a bad thing, because she still was very emotional about her, her war service. But she was welcomed like a celebrity. It was great. You know, there were there were no other Red Cross girls there. And of course, realized Mother was 84 at the time. But the boys, for everything she'd done for them, and in one of the memorabilia rooms, there was a whole series of photographs, and there was this shot of a crash. And would you believe that one of the guys that was in the plane behind this crash was there and had a picture of it? Um, He had been the tail of his plane, and they had pulled right up right after the crash to avoid crashing on top of them, and there was a picture of that crash. Isn't that amazing? That That is amazing, but that also describes uh, what our flyers went through over Europe. We had 80,000 casualties and 26,000 killed in action. Those boys paid the price for oh. our freedom. Uh, we have about three minutes uh, before, uh, Tina, before our next break. How did your mother, Ruth, uh, meet your father? Well, um, my dad was born and raised in Brunswick, St. Simon Island, Georgia, and you kind of wonder how a girl from North Dakota ended up marrying someone from Georgia, but uh, they met uh, during R&R on the Riviera after after VE Day, and uh, at that time, Mother was still working. I mean, she she had to spread herself around. I mean, her whole the whole reason the Red Cross girls were there were so... American men could talk to a, a American girl, and she had met my dad. And of course, the war was over. It was romantic. There was dances every night, and of course, the Riviera is drop dead gorgeous. And um, they had one dance in one day, and he was supposed to fly out the next day, and he didn't fly out. They were fogged in. So, long story short, he was there for four days, and they parted ways, and she. Went, she ended up shipping back to home to North Dakota and said, well, that's bad. But my dad had her father's address and looked her up, and they finally got together. And I'm really glad they did. <laughs> <laughs> I would say so. Uh, that sounds so much like my mother and father, how they met uh, right during the war and then right after the war. That's, uh, that seems like a familiar story. So you are a baby boomer like me. Oh, yes. Yeah. Me and my brother. You bet. <laughs> uh, how many siblings do you have? Uh, just my older brother, who is also a pilot. And um, it was interesting. My mom really didn't talk that much about her war service until after my dad passed away in 1994. Um, he just always had issues with the fact that she'd been married before, even though she was barely married <laughs> more than a year and hardly saw him at all. All right, we, Tina, these are great stories. We're going to our next yeah. break. When we come back, I want you to read from your grandmother's diary at Christmas. 
no peace okay. on earth. Folks, we'll be right back. Veterans Day is fast approaching. On November 11th, please don't forget to take a few moments to honor and thank those that have served so bravely. If you live to serve and want to make an even bigger difference, consider joining the U.S. Army. With training in fields like medical care, linguistics, and engineering, an Army career can amplify your efforts with humanitarian opportunities all over the world. Plus, you'll receive competitive pay and incredible benefits, so you'll be taken care of, too. Learn more at GoArmy.com. If you have lost a loved one and were left with a firearms collection and are not sure how to dispose of them safely, or you may have firearms you no longer want, this message is for you. I am a licensed FFL firearms dealer in the state of Florida, specializing in estate firearm purchases. It is very important that all firearm transactions be handled according to state and federal laws. You can contact me for information at firearmliquidationservice at outlook.com, or you can call or text me at 407-921-8100-247 and ask for James. Again, for information contact me at Firearm Liquidation Service at Outlook.com or call or text me at 407-921-8100. All communications are strictly confidential. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Okay, we're back with Tina. Uh, Tina, uh, from your grandmother's diary during the war, at Christmas she wrote... No peace on earth. Read that to us. Yeah. This is her diary entry of December 15, 1944. Remember, she thought the war was going to be over in less than a year. I believe I said that I wasn't going to write about the war. I'd leave that to more eloquent pens than mine. But how can I help it when our hearts are so heavy all the time? When we see the young lives shadowed all around us by the bitter separation and the deaths, too. Of course, Francis is the only one of our immediate family to die, but I see poor Betty, which was my aunt, my um, Uncle Mark's wife, being so brave and cheerful. And I think of Tilly not being able to share with her husband the joy of a little son and Mark away from the baby he worships and Ruth deprived of everything a girl should have. My heart is sick. There's no faintest hope of it being over soon. Always in the background of my mind is the thought of the misery and suffering and hardship of our boys in France and China and India and the South Pacific and in prison camps the world over. Even God seems to have forgotten us and what we so firmly believe to be a righteous cause. Not in half a century has the weather been so bad in Europe. Mud so the tanks can't go. Clouds and fog and snow so the planes can't fly. Never since I can remember has there ever been so little peace on earth, goodwill to men. The thing that always strikes me reading my grandmother's diaries, I mean, we have the perspective. We can be very smug about the fact that we know we won the war. But she writes freely that of her fear that we may not win. And will her grandchildren speak? German or Japanese or who knows what, um, to be home and be helpless had to be terrifying. I just, uh. Yeah. The home front was tough, too. And, and yeah. from your and grandmother's so it, diary, yeah, from your grandmother's diary, she wrote about VE Day, which was victory in Europe, and your mother's letters about the POWs. Tell us about that. Yeah. 
I was kind of surprised because, you know, we think of all those pictures in Times Square and everything, but it was really, VE Day was very quiet. Um, my grandmother, it was, that was May 7th, 1945, and my grandmother wrote on May 8th, A.M., who is my grandfather. A.M. and I got up at 7 this morning to hear President Truman's brief address announcing that the war in Europe is over, and now on to the next step, Japan. It is heartbreaking to think of all the men who will not come home, but go on to another hell. And heartbreaking, too, for the families of those and the others who will never come home. How can anyone think of celebrating? The president had proclaimed May 13th, Mother's Day, as a day of prayer and thanksgiving for this victory, and urges all of whatever creed to go to church and pray. The trails of atrocities are blood-chilling and authentic this time. The dreadful thing is that the German people really seem to believe that the suffering of other people is of no account. After signing the surrender agreement, the German officials pleaded for generosity towards the German people because they have suffered more than anyone else. If it were not so tragic, it would be funny. How is this superior race complex ever to be eradicated from the minds so poisoned? A picture in Life magazine showing simply unbelievable horrors shows a small boy strolling down a road lined with thousands of dead bodies near one of the prisons, seemingly unaffected by the horrible sight. And then Mother writes, May 10th, 1945, this is a letter. She was in Beaumont, France at that time. Dear Mother and Daddy, so that day of peace has finally come. I haven't done one bit of celebrating. Somehow all I can do is say, thank God it's over over here. In fact, it's been rather depressing thinking of all the good guys who aren't here to celebrate. The war really seems to be in our backyard here. For the past four days, we have been literally swamped with freed POWs. They're flying them to England from our field. All of them are British subjects. We've all talked to them, and some have been prisoners since Dunkirk. Imagine. All in all, they are people fairly healthy, but then we don't see the hospital cases at all. They have been going through here by the train load. All of the French in this village have been feeding them eggs and what have you. Our kitchen is practically a short order house for fried eggs. Makes me wish I had something more to feed them besides coffee and those damn donuts. VE Day was celebrated very strangely here. Nothing to make noise with except the church bell and the air raid sirens. The siren has been going practically every hour. Makes me jump. I keep thinking a plane has crashed on the field. For two nights, everyone and his brother shot airplane flares at night. The sky looked just like the 4th of July. Really quite a display. Everyone that possibly could got stinking for Lincoln, meaning drunk. Guess they had been saving bottles of cognac for months. Anyway, we did a land office business and coffee as a sobering up service. Yeah, I mean, we think of big celebrations, but obviously they were thinking about the guys and gals that weren't there to celebrate with them. Had to be a very, very difficult. That would have to be difficult. Did you know very much about your mom's participation in World War II before finding the letters? Well, she had she had told us stories off and on. Usually, they were the funny ones. She tells the story about someone flying in with 30 lemons from Egypt and they're deciding to make pies for lemon meringue pies for the boys and 
Then they had to coerce getting eggs, which they did, and then they realized they had no pie tins. Um, <laughs> she didn't really talk about the, the sad stuff, and me being the daughter that I am, felt that these stories should be written down, so I enrolled her in a writing class in Jacksonville, where she lived, for one of her birthday presents. Pretty of me. But um, a lot of these stories that I'm reading, she wrote during those classes, and she was a wonderful writer. I mean, she really caught the moment of it, um, but it still haunted her. She finally got the mission story written, but I really, I really kind of felt bad after that, because... I came home from my office, and she was working on it. She was visiting me at the time here in Texas, and she was crying. And I guess that's why I get carry myself. After all that time, it was still so real to her. So I'm just very grateful that she persevered, and I guess that I did. So we have this record. Now, when, when were you finally able to discuss the letters with your mom? Well, when I started transcribing them and realized that there was really a pretty good story, but there were a lot of open holes. And so I was uh, working in Los Angeles at the time and doing a lot of flying back and forth with different jobs in television. And so when I, I would zip down to Jacksonville every time I got a chance or was in that vicinity, and I would videotape Mom interviewing her. And she was able to fill in all the gaps because, first of all, she couldn't write them because they'd be censored, and she certainly didn't want to terrify her parents also. So that really kind of helped fill in the gaps for things and the timeline of things. So we really worked on it together for about a four-year time period. Wow. It was great. It was really, really a wonderful project for the two of us, and I'm so glad I got it done. I bet it was working with your mom. I know my dad told me some stories, but I didn't know the full extent of his service until I found all his uh, uh, military records in the attic one day. This may sound like silly questions to a lot of people, but go ahead and what do you think the Red Cross was trying to achieve by sending American women overseas? Well, having worked in communications and public relations my whole career, um, it was a brilliant move on their part. Um, those American girls represented what these poor boys were fighting for, and especially in France, where they just wanted to talk to an American girl. Um, it was just like, you know, nirvana, because these guys <laughs> had been so it for so long. And Mother said, our job was to talk and listen. And that's what she did. And wear perfume. Uh, she she was writing her parents constantly to send perfume because the boys just loved the smell of perfume. And a, and a American girl represented sisters, mothers, sweethearts, wives, you name it. Um, just have that enthusiasm and that support in their downtime just meant everything. And when we met some of the veterans who Mother had worked with, which was awesome, um, it was so true. The years just fell away. Those guys and gals were, you know, in their twenties again, and it was just, it was just magnificent. Yeah, so many, so many memories. Uh, you talk about perfume. You know, the donut dolls in Vietnam—they would wear perfume too. And 
the, the guys were like a bunch of hound dogs, you know, smelling perfume and everything. But uh, I did not know this until I interviewed a donut dolly from Vietnam, that the dogs in Vietnam, uh, the Vietnamese uh, dogs, they didn't like the smell of perfume, and they would snarl and sometimes bite the donut dollies. Really? Oh, my goodness. Yeah. Yeah, I, did, I, did, I didn't hear of any British dogs or French dogs doing that to our troops in Europe, but... Uh, <laughs> you know, we, we always yeah yeah we always hear about donut dollies and that they serve such a great great function. But what other services did the Red Cross provide overseas besides the donut dollies? Uh, yeah, they there were like four major areas, um, and the things that I was reading in some of my research, there were like seven thousand women that were sent overseas in the Red Cross to serve in the. ETO as well as in the Pacific and CBI, and of all the all the female um, deployment from you know wax or waves or what have you, uh, their highest casualties were with Red Cross girls because the club mobiles or the donut dollies were actually going to the front lines where the troops were. But yeah. what Mother did was she ran aero clubs on air bases. And that was for the enlisted men. They did. She did meals, um, dances, recreation. She had libraries. She had ping pong tables. She had card tables. You know, whenever they had a moment of free time and a snack bar in most of them, this is where they would go. And they were very clear about supporting the enlisted men, not the officers. Um, another deployment was in the rest homes where guys were either convalescing from uh, wounds or were just there for R&R, you know, a chance to step away from the war. They also were involved in the USOs. There weren't too many USOs during World War II. That was kind of the heyday when they all got started. And, and I think the service of the Red Cross kind of evolved into USOs from that point forward for conflicts that we had. Um, and so those were the, those were the four areas. The uh, club mobiles, the aero clubs, the USOs, and the rest homes. Well, you know, when I did my research on the donut dice in Vietnam, I also uh, did research on the donut dice in World War II, and I don't remember the exact figure, but I was sort of shocked at how many Red Cross nurses and donut dollies were lost in World War II. Do you know the number? Um, I don't know the exact number, but um, in some of my readings, because, you know, they were mobile. Mother was stationary, but these trucks, she did drive one for a little while in France, and she just absolutely hated them. They had a donut machine that would turn out 400 donuts an hour, <laughs> and they were horrible. Um, but, you know, the guys loved them, and they made gallons of coffee. She writes... Uh, in one entry in France that they made 4,000 donuts for a day and they were gone in about an hour and a half. So, you know, these poor guys were starving, much less starving for hearing a Red Cross girl or an American girl speak. But, um, yeah, the Clubmobile ladies really had a rough time and she, she was very grateful not to have to do that after she learned what that was really all about. So, um, they deserve a lot of the recognition because a lot of them didn't make it. They, they didn't, and, and I remember the casualties were, it shocked me to find out how many lost. All right, we are going to our last break. 
Uh, Tina, we'll be right back, folks. Please stay with us. Start taking back our country from the liberal wokes by voting locally for conservative Republicans. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls of all ages, join me, Roger B., every Tuesday at 1400 hours right here on America's Web Radio for the Locked and Loaded Show. We will talk about guns, weapons, ammo, gun accessories, prepping, and so much more. So be sure to join us every Tuesday at 1400 or 2 p.m. for Locked and Loaded on America's Web Radio. Hello, my name is Rick White, and I'm the director of the Georgia Military Veterans Hall of Fame. I want to encourage all Georgia veterans to consider being nominated to the Georgia Military Veterans Hall of Fame. And if you are a Georgia veteran, then the definition of a Georgia veteran is either you were born in the state of Georgia, or you've lived here 10 years, or you were raised your right hand and joined the military in this state, you are considered a Georgia veteran. For further information, go to www.gmbhof.org, or you can contact me at 678-427-0915. We'd love to have your nomination for the Georgia Military Veterans Hall of Fame. Thank you so much. If you have lost a loved one and were left with a firearms collection and are not sure how to dispose of them safely, or you may have firearms you no longer want, this message is for you. I am a licensed FFL firearms dealer in the state of Florida, specializing in estate firearm purchases. It is very important that all firearm transactions be handled according to state and federal laws. You can contact me for information at firearmliquidationservice at outlook.com, or you can call or text me at 407-921-8100-247 and ask for James. Again, for information contact me at firearmliquidationservice at outlook.com, or call or text me at 407-921-8100. All communications are strictly confidential. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Okay, folks, we're back with Tina Woods and her remarkable book, My War, about her mother's service as a Red Cross representative in World War II and a diary from her grandmother on the home front. Uh, Tina, you said you and your mother attended some reunions. What was it like to attend the 492nd Bomb Group Reunion. Oh, fantastic. It was wonderful. You know, at first I wasn't sure how Mom would be received. I mean, these were all veterans and their families, and, you know, even though Mother mother was considered a civilian, but she did have officer status if she'd been captured. Um, they provided a little protection for these young ladies. But um, it was it was wonderful to meet these guys, and in fact, one that she writes about visiting in the hospital. He was one of the pilots who who crashed through a training exercise. He had finished all of his missions and was headed home, but they asked him to stay around um, and do some training for some of the new recruits that were just coming in with these B twenty fours because they weren't exactly agile machines to fly. <laughs> His name was Ernie Har, and so Ernie stayed and was involved in a horrible crash that only two of them survived. Wow. And Mother owned him when he was flying missions with the 492nd and uh, on her base. And when he was hurt, she went to the hospitals and visited him at Christmas time and everything. Well, fast forward, uh, Brian Mahoney's father, James J. Mahoney, had written a similar book reluctant witness and there was a whole chapter in there about mother and brian wanted to verify what his dad had written 
And so he contacted Ernie Hard because Ernie remembered Mother, and he remembered she was from Bismarck, North Dakota, and found and Christensen was her maiden name. So he got in touch with my uncle, and we found out Ernie just lived in Melbourne, Florida, and Mother lived in Jacksonville. So my brother got to meet Ernie, and uh, it was just oh, it was just a delightful relationship. And he encouraged us to go to the reunions. And we were able to attend about four or five of them, and that was my rush to get the book published because we wanted to share it with them, and so we did several book signings, and um, it was just fantastic. Those guys were amazing gentlemen, and it was such a privilege to get to know them and be with them. Um, I'll never forget it. I bet there were some characters among those pilots, too. Oh, my gosh. Well, and, you know, as the alcohol would flow, the stories got more and more and more <laughs> interesting um, because there wasn't a lot of drinking on the bases. And, you know, it is, the thing was that they had no one to really talk to these things about who knew what it was like. And so when these veterans would get together, the gap sessions were just amazing. And, of course, Mother was involved in it, and it just refreshed her memory about so many things. And the best part was they thanked her for what she'd done. Um, Red Cross didn't get a whole lot of recognition, and to hear from them was just great. I'll bet it Wonder. was. I'll bet, your, I'll bet your mother really looked forward to those reunions. It's like going back and being with her sons, you know? Oh, absolutely. You know, it was addicting. Yeah. Once we went to the first view, it's like, okay, where are we going next year? So um, <laughs> it was just a wonderful experience. Wonderful. Well, bless, bless her heart. You mentioned the accidents, though. We lost a lot of our pilots in World War II just from accidents, not just the war itself or from enemy action. Uh, and people don't know this, uh, that during the training of our pilots here in the United States during World War II, we lost 18,000 pilot trainees uh, here in the oh States during World War II. Yeah, 18,000. The, the planes were, were modern for their time, but we still had, uh, compared to the technology we have today, I have flown on, on B-17s, and boy, they're slow and they're vulnerable. Uh, mm. and, and the B-24s, I talked to one out, and I said, what, what's it like flying that thing? He says, it's like driving an 18 wheel with 18 flat tires. <laughs> yeah, and I think that was... That was a good description for the B-24 Liberator. Uh, what other books and authors have you encountered about the 492nd Bomb Group that might be of interest to folks? Uh, sure. There's a there's a wonderful website. If someone will Google 492nd Bomb Group, um, the Arnett brothers have, have put together a fabulous website, and there's several books that are listed there, including Mom's book, my book, Um but for a similar kind of, of recounting of real time, uh, Brian Mahoney wrote Reluctant Witness, which is about, the, it was a compilation of things that his father, James J. Mahoney, had written. He was the CEO of the 492nd. Um, Charles Bastine wrote 32 Co-Pilots. He was one of the groups that mom really got close to. She would, like, adopt a whole squadron. You couldn't really pair up. You weren't allowed to, number one, but she didn't want to. I mean, she was still a widow. 
but um, Bastian was part of the BTOs, the big-time operators, and he writes about Mother, but it's also a fabulous book. I believe these are all on Amazon. And then Alan Blue wrote The Fortunes of War, which is uh, a wonderful chronicle of what happened to the 492nd Bomb Group. They were called the Hard Luck Group because um, planes during missions over to, to Germany and Poland. Uh, there's quite a wealth of, of first-person accounts, and uh, probably the Arnett's website, 492nd Bomb Group, is a great place to start. But the guys who survived it were just incredible gentlemen, even then. And they were such kids. I mean, Mom was 26, 27 years old when she did this, and most of the boys were barely in their 20s. She was considered an older woman. By most of them because <laughs> that's she, true. Like, yeah. They were just kids. It's remarkable what they did. It's remarkable. It is. It is. Uh, so young. I, I, we had some B-17 pilots who were like 18, 19 years old. Uh, we are going to promote your book at the uh, American Web Radio. Uh, you just talked to our station owner and manager, David Moxley. And thank you, David, for doing that. Also, uh, where else can people uh, find your book to purchase? Um, probably Amazon is the best place. Um, if you do a search on My War from Bismarck, if you just do My War, you're going to get Andy Rooney's book, <laughs> which we didn't realize when we But add, add Bismarck and, and Mom's book will come up. There's also a Kindle version available as well. Oh, it, is, it is a wonderful book. You were talking about the Hard Luck Squadron. That B-24 squadron, I believe they lost all their planes except for two or something like that. It was, it was man, it, they, they got the worst of it. Yes, they really did. They really did. And there were so few of them that they joined another group, and later it was kind of resurrected as the carpetbaggers, so they did a lot of, uh, lot of low-flying espionage work later on, but um, yeah, I think that's part of why those veterans who survived were so active in getting together because, you know, there were so few of them and so few people they could talk to who really understand who lived it and um, survived it. So it's, they were amazing. It's difficult for, uh, I guess you would want to call them civilians or people who never served to understand some of our stories they can listen but they'll never understand like a fellow veteran or someone who has really been in war like your mother uh it's an experience of a when i say experience of a lifetime sometimes you sign that dotted line to give your life away for this country uh i don't i don't think this country will ever see uh, another greatest generation do you no i really don't because I, you know, part of it is, I mean, I shouldn't blame media. I've been a part of the media for my whole professional yeah, me too. life. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I, you know, I just remark, I remember being so shocked when Mother told me that the country didn't know that President Roosevelt couldn't walk. I mean, yeah. could you imagine any high-profile person not having the most intimate details of their life plastered all over, you know, the Internet or Facebook or what have you. I mean, it's, it's a fabulous tool, 
that it gives us information at our fingertips and a voice to people who have not had a voice. But um, the loose lips sink ships. I mean, Mother taught was very clear, and my grandmother as well. I mean, so many people were so in the dark that they they just supported the war effort. There was a single message, and they all got on board. I guess, you know, the closest we'll ever come is the bombing of the Twin Towers and 9-11 um, to have an incident that galvanized the nation so that we all came together for a common cause. Uh, I like to think that our nation would rise to that again. I, in my heart of hearts, I hope so. Um, but it's such a different time and so many different viewpoints and uh, they they were the best of what our country could produce at this time and we all and they were all our parents let's face it um so we owe them a tremendous amount of gratitude for what they did and just didn't even think twice just stepped up and signed up or were drafted but did their did their duty and continue to this day to do their duty which is just remarkable our armed forces veteran tomorrow you know they're the best. They really are. They are, they are the best. Uh, uh, I love these veterans to death. I'm one of them. But I mean, I, these, especially these kids now. They're great, great kids. Uh, our station manager's son is, is serving in Europe, uh, in Germany, I believe. Uh, you talk about the, the media these days. Uh, David Moxley and Americans Web Radio are extremely, extremely patriotic. We love this country. We love our freedoms. And we fight for it every day. I know David is a, is a great patriot. Uh, so much of the media now, uh, Tina, is media of misinformation. And I think that's what we're fighting. Um, I know you see it every day, too. Sure. Yeah. We just we can't thank our veterans enough, the ones who are serving right now, the ones who gave the ultimate sacrifice, and, of course, the ones who, who raised us. I mean, it's just... It's a it's a tradition and a legacy that we need to celebrate and honor always. It is. It is. We got about the, uh, thirty seconds. You got any final thoughts or words? You got one minute. <laughs> one minute. Well, I just want to thank you for the opportunity to share Mom's story and my grandmother's story and um, talk a little bit about our grandparents for those younger listeners and our parents for those of us baby boomers. Um, they were special people, and we are blessed to have had them in our lives, always. Yes, and it's going to be up to people like you, Tina. Yeah, it's going to be up to people like you and me and David and a whole bunch of people to keep these stories alive, because as we lose these World War II veterans, their stories are going to move on with them, and and it's going to be up to us. So I thank you so much for being my guest. A great, great interview, and I love this book to death. Um... Folks, go out and buy the book. (laughs) Thank you, (laughs) Tina, so much. Okay, thank you so much, young lady. Love talking with you. Thank you so much. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening.